Uh, welcome to what is the fifth of these Sunday night topic nights uh, as we've been working our way through the Pentateuch. As you can see, we've got a fancy term on the screen uh, and I tried to pitch it to you via email and obviously it works. Pitch it to you in email about what that really means. But because of the space I have at the top, I've gone for the technical word. So you can uh, yeah, speak to other people and say, we learned about monotheism on Sunday and they can be your what? And you can explain to them what we're doing. We've been working our way through the Pentateuch and we have hit Deuteronomy, so the last book of the five, the five books of the Pentateuch. So what you'll need this evening is hopefully a Bible in front of you. Uh, You should have a handout that looks a bit like this. If not, there are a few there that you can grab. And that'll be everything that we need for this evening. Now the point of these evenings is us to think hard about what the Bible says. The Lord calls us to love him with all of our hearts, minds, soul and strength. So we want to be doing that this evening. So let's make a start, shall we? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray this evening you'd help us to see what you say in your word. Father, help us to be clear on this topic, or clearer than when we came. Please help me to be clear as I try and teach here. And Father, we pray that what is said this evening would be to your praise and glory. Amen. Amen. So we've hit Deuteronomy in our small groups on a Wednesday night, and Deuteronomy has a lot, and I mean a lot, about worshipping the one true God. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, where we were on on Wednesday night, Moses said, you were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God, and besides him, there is no other. Moses thinks this is going to be the issue that's going to plague the whole of Israel for the rest of their existence. We're going to see that more as we go through our studies on a Wednesday night. And that's not just an issue for the people back in Moses' day. It's something that we need to be clear on too. As Christians, we need to understand how God reveals himself. Because there are a lot of accusations, a lot of accusations levied against Christians that we have changed the way things work. Uh, accusations that we have moved the goalposts, whether that is uh, the knock on the Saturday morning with the Jehovah's Witnesses turning up at your door wanting to deny the Trinity, whether that is uh, talking to Jewish friends who say that the Old Testament never imagined that there was a Trinity, or if you know some Muslims, they claim that Christians are committing shirk, that is, they say Christians are polytheists, we believe in multiple gods many gods. In fact, here we go. Here's an accusation. Uh, You've got it on your sheet there. The idea of God as a duality or trinity is heretical because, according to Judaic beliefs, the Torah, that is another word for the Pentateuch, it rules out a Trinitarian God. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jews for Jesus, that's an organisation working with Jewish people to point them to Christ, says that this verse, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4, is used more than any other verse to affirm that God is one and deny that the Trinity can be true. And Islam follows the same arguments. I mean, that's, that's a strong accusation, a strong objection, isn't it, when you think about it? The Bible truly says that then we're on rocky ground. 
It seems like a strong objection, or at least it does on the surface. Is it just that Christians have run off with an odd direction with their beliefs about God? Is the Trinity something that's been cooked up in a lab and totally devoid of context? Were the only disciples, were Jesus' closest friends, were they deluded? Were they straying from their Jewish roots? I was reminded earlier that it's Trinity Sunday today, if you follow the church calendar. Works out well, doesn't it? God's providence there. Lots of things to think about. That's what we're doing this evening. So it'd be good to turn into smaller groups. So if you turn your chairs in, find some people around you. What methods have you heard for explaining the Trinity to people? If someone was to say, the Bible doesn't say anything about Trinity, what on earth is the Trinity? What ways have you heard for explaining this? You don't have to give something that you actually think, but things that you've heard other people say. Okay? I'll give you a few moments to chat in smaller groups about that. Off you go. Let's come back together. Uh, anyone want to share something, something they've heard someone else say? Okay? You don't have to commit yourself to something that you think. Something that you've heard a friend say. Okay? We know how that works. Danny. Uh, so when I was little, it was explained to me as it's like a torch. You need a bulb, the body of the torch, and a battery to, make, to be together. Body and battery. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard something like that before. Yeah, my handwriting is great, isn't it? Anyway. <laughs> Anyone else? Michelle? Um, I've heard that it's like water, so water can be steamed, can be ice, and it can be liquid, so you can that they're all different things that are from one thing. Great. You've heard that one before as well? Uh, the three-legged stool. Three-legged stool? Oh, I've heard that you subways. ways. Okay. A folding up stool. That's a stool. <laughs> I just, I'm just going to quit that. There you go. I'm not giving Guy that. <laughs> just because I can. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? There's lots of different explanations given for how can you explain the Trinity to people. In fact, there are many ways of approaching this. Uh, many ways people have tried to approach this topic over the years. Now, don't mishear me as I say what I'm about to say. Don't mishear me as saying these things are terrible, that they're wrong. I just want us to think how the Bible does this this evening, okay? So on your handout, here are a few. And the first one is the one we were just talking about, actually. We approach the Trinity as a problem. Now, Trinitarian illustrations that you can buy a book on this. Uh, I found one on Amazon earlier. Uh, so you've got the clover. Uh, so what, what do you do? Oh, there's, it's one, but it's three. Uh, or the shamrock, if you want to be more precise. Uh, the river, which is kind of like Michelle's water one. Uh, spring, river, estuary. Uh, roles, father, husband and son. Can all be the same person. You know that riddle, don't you, about how can the sun operate on you? Yeah, that one. Uh, H2O. My dad's a scientist, that's why I went for H2O rather than water. But ice, water and steam. Or more recently, uh, teenagers nowadays, fidget spinners. Looks like three bits. When you spin it, it's one circle. Great, isn't it? We spend a lot of time, as Christians, as we've just discussed, trying to make one plus one plus one equal one. We come at the Trinity as if it's a problem, that we start with three, and we need to somehow get back to one. And somehow it gets quite confusing, and we end up making all sorts of errors in the way that we explain things. Uh, there's a whole load of things called Trinitarian heresies, which I'm sure we can talk about at another point, but we don't have too much time on that tonight. I want to say approaching the Trinity as a problem is a problem in itself. 
It's not a problem to be solved like that. Here's another way people approach it. I've written it there. Approaching the Trinity is a set of propositions. Uh, sorry about the academic speak there. Approaching the Trinity is a set of propositions for how the persons relate eternally. Uh, so that is thinking about how does God exist in himself, starting there, and going, well, how does God do this? Now, this isn't a bad thing to do. This is, uh, there's lots of profitable things that can come out of doing this. But if we were to start there and go, okay, there were three, and for love to exist, well, there has to be more than one, so therefore the Holy Spirit is like the love that goes between God, and then the Son is the Word, and trying to work that kind of stuff, it's, it gets confusing, and it's not very helpful to start with. It might be helpful later on down the line. It's another way people come at this. Here's another one. Oh, the A moved. Approaching the Trinity as a philosophical issue or an intellectual issue. So you find this uh, in the Middle Ages. There's quite a lot of this going on. Uh, so you start with this idea of the greatest being imaginable. You think, what is the greatest thing I could imagine? Well, God must be that. Got a bit of an issue there because our minds are limited. Our minds are sinful. So we're never going to be able to think of the greatest uh, or uh, some people talk about the unmoved mover. So they go to Greek philosophy and they talk about the unmoved mover. And they go, well, that must be God. Therefore, we can derive stuff from there. Or again, if you start thinking about love, how can, how can two people, or how can one person love, be love if there's only one of them? That means there must be more than one, etc. Again, those things aren't terrible. There's some profit to thinking that way. But it's not the place we want to start. And here's one that might be a bit close to home. Trying to find the Trinity in the Bible. How many people here have tried to find the Trinity in the Bible? Yeah. I'm not saying the Trinity is not in the Bible. Don't, don't mishear me when I said that. Being provocative. That's how it works. But just think. So let's flip back. Genesis chapter 1. We go, okay, in the beginning. In the beginning, what happens? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we get to the creation of mankind, and God says, let us make mankind in our image. And we go, is that the Trinity? And we go, that, that sounds quite plausible. I mean, he's saying us, that's plural. Uh, it's not talking to one person. Uh, in our image, that's plural again. And we think, okay, maybe, maybe the Trinity's there. So we take that as our, our Trinity verse, and then we go talk to our Jewish friends. And they start talking about divine councils, or they start talking about plurals of majesty. As the Queen says, uh, one, maybe uh, majesty would say our back then. And it's just a bit shaky. It's not a great place to start. Or you get to Genesis chapter 18. Do you remember Genesis 18? Uh, Abraham has some visitors who he invites over for food. And how many of them are there? It's three. Three visitors. And it seems that God speaks through them. Hang on a minute. Have we found the Trinity in the Bible? Oh, maybe we'll run with this one. And then we speak to Jewish friends or Islamic friends or people like that, and they've got another explanation, and we're back to square one again. And we start going through the Bible, and by hook and by crook, trying to find the Trinity, pulling it out of any verses. Maybe the Trinity's hiding under this verse here. Maybe it's hiding under that verse there. It's a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? And I want to just say it's interesting that the New Testament, when it tries to prove that Jesus is God, it doesn't go to any of those verses. It doesn't try and do any of those things that we want to do with those verses. So maybe there's something amiss there. It's really difficult. It's really difficult. Sometimes we can feel as Christians that we're on shaky ground. Perhaps, actually, we feel like we're on the back foot when we're talking to friends and neighbours about this. Well, this evening, I want to show us that the Bible actually has no issue with the Trinity. 
I hope you believe that. In fact, I want to show you that the very proof text that we saw earlier, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, doesn't bear the weight that is put on it in that objection. And that interestingly, the Bible doesn't go for any of those approaches in the way that it wants to deal with God. So what is the Bible's way of approaching the topic? Well, since we're thinking about the Pentateuch, we're only going to get the beginnings of an answer here. And in the amount of time that we have, we're not going to be able to sink into the depths as much as we might want to. But I'm hoping that what we see tonight is going to help us in the way that we think, in the way that we continue to think and dwell as we carry on going forwards. In fact, I want to say that the New Testament reckons that this is a question that does have an answer. But it tends to answer it in a way that we we don't spot because we're not looking the same way. And it's striking that the Bible just doesn't speak in the way that most Trinity explanations do. So as we think of the things we've seen before, the Bible doesn't use them. It'd be really nice, wouldn't it, if John was to say, oh yeah, Jesus said that he is uh, the living water, and because the Trinity, ice, water, and steam as well. That would be nice, but it's not there. So we want to ask this evening, how does the Bible answer this question? Well, in fact, is the Bible actually interested in answering our question? Now, we've seen the Bible is a narrative. It's a narrative that develops itself. So we're going to expect that God might be developing uh, his revelation of himself to us. We're not going to start on page one with, here's everything you need to know about God. We're expecting God to develop how he reveals himself through the whole of the Bible, through the Bible story. In fact, I'd claim that the Bible is the story of God revealing himself to mankind. And if that's the case, well, where does the story start? Well, the Bible starts talking about God being one. Now, this is different to what we were just saying. In all of those explanations and those illustrations we were talking about, we start with God being three, and then we try and work down to God being one. The Bible, in fact, starts the other way around. The Bible starts with one and then comes out to three. Just think, we were saying one plus one plus one equals three. And the question we tend to come with for the Trinity is this. How can God be one whilst he's also three? And then we struggle to find passages that answer those questions because the Bible simply doesn't start there. The Bible starts with God is one. So let's see some of this, shall we? So go back into those groups you were in earlier and pick one of these passages. There's not going to be enough time to do all of them, but pick one of them. Uh, maybe I can see five groups here. So maybe we go one, two, three at the back, four, five. Don't worry if you don't fully get that. But pick, pick one on there. We'll try and cover them all. What does the verse that's been given to you, or the chapter, skim the chapter, you should recognise it because we've covered that chapter before. What does it tell us about God being one? What does it tell us about God being one in those verses? Let's take a few moments to look at that passage. And if you finish one of them, start looking at another one. Let's take a bit of time to do that, shall we? Has everybody managed to look at at least one? Brilliant. Should we come back together then? Share a bit of the, uh, the communal knowledge. Anyone looking at Exodus chapter 20, verse 3? Great. So, only one God. Yep, so ten commandments, ten words. Only one God. There's an issue there, isn't there, as we get later on. In fact, in Exodus chapter 32... What happened in Exodus 32? 
Golden calf. What was the issue there? Hmm? They had, haven't they? And you kind of get this backwards and forwards between is Aaron thinking that this is representing God? Are the people thinking this is their gods? What's going on there? So the issue there seems to be one God again. Uh, what about Deuteronomy chapter 6? We've seen this one already. So there's a contrast there, isn't there, between one and other gods. Great. Uh, Deuteronomy 13, who had that? And what's going to happen with the prophets, is it? Yeah, yeah, if you listen to Great, yeah, so put to death anyone who tries to tell you there's more than one God. Great. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, who had that? Yeah. Um, we, so uh, he is a rock and a saviour. He is the God. And there are lots of false gods, but only one true God. Bible's quite clear, isn't it? Pentateuch. There is one God. That's where we start. That's what we need to be holding on to as we go forwards, as we go. Good work. Well, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Now, when you see the word one, you might think, is that saying, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, not three? You might think that oneness is an opposite to threeness. Or you might look at that and go, well, that's quite impersonal. The Lord is one. That's How can I approach the one God? What's going on there? But as we look at the Pentateuch, as we read more of what's going on here, we find the Bible says the complete opposite. And we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 6. See, the context of the passage gives us the answer to the question. And this is always a good tip. If something looks confusing, particularly if someone knocks on your door and tries to show you a verse, just read the text around it. And it will help you understand what that verse is really saying. So you go. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You could change that full stop to a so that, or so what. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The Lord is one. Therefore... Love him and him only. Don't share your allegiance with anybody else. Exclusively worship this one God. Or if you want another fancy word to tell your friends tomorrow, monolatry is the word for exclusive worship. See, multiple gods, just imagine you have multiple gods. Imagine being a Greek or a Roman, like we learn those at school, don't we? Kids, we learn about Greek gods recently, Zeus and the rest of that, yeah. And they all have fight for each other, don't they? Yeah, multiple gods means you have multiple views. You have opposing views. Who are you going to listen to the most? Well, probably the one that I agree with the most. In fact, think about today. We see this today. Think about the controversies that are rocking our world at the moment. In fact, I opened the news earlier, and I saw the feminism versus transgenderism debates. Two different ideas that people want to hold both of them, but they end up fighting each other and disagreeing with one another. And when they disagree... You have to decide, well, which one of those is going to win? Which one am I going to agree with the most? 
So in Deuteronomy 6, and in the other passages we saw, the opposite of oneness is actually idolatry. So the opposite of one, the Lord is one, therefore love him with everything you've got. To do the opposite of that is to follow idols. Verses 14 and 15 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you, for the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. See, Deuteronomy 6 is all about this topic, and it takes it further. It says God's oneness makes it ethical. It makes it something that you ought to do. It stresses an imperative, a command, a rule. Because God is one, you must, you must worship that one God alone. To do anything else would be utterly sinful. To worship anything else is utterly sinful. Because God is one, worship only him. See, it's not just simply a a philosophical thought. It's actually a really important command. It really, really matters. So then, the opposite of oneness is idolatry. It's giving rivals to God. The opposite of oneness is not plurality in God, or persons, you might say. The opposite of oneness is not threeness. So when it says, when this verse says God is one, that doesn't mean that God also can't be three. The issue is having rivals in praise and in worship to the one true God, as we find as we go through the rest of the Bible. But the other objection then is, is oneness an impersonal thing? If you read theologians, if you open a systematic theology, you tend to find things like this. Uh, there were three who's and there was one what. I mean, the who's, they're quite personal, aren't they? If you think about a who, a person, that is what's well, in the name, personal. But if you think about a what, well, a what is by definition impersonal, isn't it? An ice cream is a what. I don't have a relationship with an ice cream. Izzy is a person. I have a relationship with my wife. You see, it's the answer to the who question, not the what question. Do you see the oneness here in these passages? The one God is the one God who brought Israel out of Egypt. The one God isn't a force. It's not a thing. The one God is a who. The one God is a who. In fact, the one God, as you go through the Pentateuch, is the one God that you can trust, one that you can serve. I can't trust an ice cream. It's going to fall on the floor or drip down my clothes. That really embarrassing moment. can't trust an ice cream, but I can trust a person. I can serve another person. I can't serve a thing. One God, personal. So why worship God alone? Well, let's have a look at the Bible again. You've got your question there. Why worship God alone? There are four passages there. And yes, the last one is kind of like putting a dashes and hyphens in to get more verses in there. Uh, But have a look at all of those passages. Pick one of them in your groups. Maybe we go one, two, three, four, like that, and decide where you thought my hand was pointing. Um, Have a look at these passages and see what the reason is that God gives for worshipping God alone. Does that make sense? Great. Let's give you a few moments to look at the text. Off you go. Hopefully you've had enough time to at least skim through and start thinking about one of those passages. Why worship God alone in these passages? Well, you might be thinking to yourself, well, duh, there's only one God, so why why worship anyone else? 
And yeah, that's one of the things that gets said. So Deuteronomy 32, verses 17 and 18, right at the end of the Pentateuch there, it says, they sacrificed to false gods which are not gods. Gods they had not known, gods that had recently appeared. Gods your ancestors did not fear. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forget about the God who gives you birth. There's only one God. So why would you spend time anywhere else? In fact, Isaiah, if you remember the time we had in Isaiah, if you were here on a Sunday night, Isaiah uses this the same way. In fact, he uses Deuteronomy 32 all the way through to indict the people of Israel, saying you've done the wrong thing. But some other verses there were making a big emphasis on what God has done. Exodus chapter 20. Obey the Lord because he's the one who rescued you. He's the one who brought you out of Egypt. There are reasons to worship the one true God. So what is it then that makes God God? This is the other side of your handout. What is it that makes God God in the Pentateuch and in the whole Bible? Well, there's a guy, a guy who I'm leaning heavily on here, uh, called Richard Borkham, who has written some books. I'll show you more about them later. But he talks about something called the divine identity. And that's what I'm saying, the thing that makes God God. It's my East Kent for you. The thing that makes God God, or the divine identity. But let's go back into groups and look at some of these verses and see if we can get the general gist of why they're lumped together. Uh, so pick any of them you want to do. Obviously, there's a lot more for the one on the right to find what's going on there. But just have a look at the passages and see what it is that makes God God in those verses. Let's go back into groups for a few moments. I'm hoping that just by seeing the sheer number of verses and chapters and big sections, that we might think the Pentateuch's got quite a big point it's making, uh, working through these as we work through the whole thing. In fact, the first chapter, one of the last chapters. So what is it then in these passages that makes God God? Let me, let me show you this. The first one is, and this is the very first one on the left, so Genesis 1, Exodus 7, the God is the only creator. Genesis chapter 1, remember where we begin everything? In the beginning, God made everything. You might hear people talk about what's called the creator-creation distinction. There is a creator who made everything, and then there's everything else that's made. There is a divider there, isn't it? The one who's made everything and everything else. There is a line. God is on this side, on his own, and everything else is made. In the beginning, God created everything. Or Exodus chapter 7 to 10. As you read through the plagues, you can speak to Sam Barber about this. As you read through the plagues, you realise that God is proving that he is the creator. Every single plague has something to do with Genesis 1 to 3 going on. God is proving that he is the creator God in the plagues. In fact, he is the creator... Therefore, application, you should listen to him. If your name is Pharaoh, you really ought to listen to him. So in the Bible, to be the creator is to be God. If you are the creator of everything, well, you are God. You are on that side of the line. To claim that someone else is a creator is to claim that someone else is God. If you say that something else made something, well, that thing has to be God. That's how that works. So what makes God God? Well, he's the creator of everything. Secondly, this is the right-hand side 
The second thing we find out about the Bible, in the Bible, about God, is that God is the only judge. Well, it kind of makes sense when you think about it. If he's the creator, well, he can only be the judge. He's the only one who can fairly judge. Genesis chapter 3. God created everything. What happens in Genesis 3? We have the fall. God says, cursed are you. He acts as the judge. Genesis chapter 6 to 9, that's the story of Noah. God judges the earth by flooding it, doesn't he? In fact, Genesis 6 to 9 says that God is the judge of all flesh. He's the judge of the entire world. Uh, Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. Surely the judge of all the earth will do what is right, is said with Abraham. Exodus 32, golden calf. God judges the people of Israel. Leviticus 26, if the people are to uh, disobey God, they're going to be judged. They're going to go into exile. Deuteronomy 28, same thing again. Deuteronomy 32, same thing again. God is the creator. And in the Pentateuch as well, God is the judge. He judges Israel. He judges the covenant made with Israel, the covenant with Moses. But more than that, he can judge the whole world. He is the judge of all the earth, the judge of all flesh. We start in Genesis chapter 1 to 11 for a reason. We start with the whole world. God is the creator of the whole world. God is the judge of the whole world. That's what the Pentateuch wants to establish when we ask the question, what makes God God? From the creation of everything to the judgment of everything. God is in charge from the start to the end. You could say God is the beginning and the end. Or you could say God is the alpha and the omega. God is the creator and the judge. It sounds quite biblical, doesn't it? Because it is. But there's one more thing, one more aspect to God that the Bible wants to hold as definitional, that the Pentateuch throws in our face as well. This is the final one on the left-hand side. And that is that God is the only eternal. Now, don't mix any Marvel stuff in here. The only one who is eternal. And this connects both of those things. Deuteronomy 33, verses 26 to 27. I remember being in a growth group with Candice. And I remember Candice saying, this verse is amazing. It's always stuck in my head. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. See, God is the only one who is outside of time. In fact, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 makes that point. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created time. God is outside of time. God is the only creator the only one who is judge, and the only one who is eternal. Everything else is created, judged, and not eternal. And everything else that we say about God, our whole doctrine of God, the things we say about God, are really implications of this. If you want to talk about divine simplicity, you might have heard that phrase before. You might never have heard of it, you may never want to hear about it, but that is derived from this. When we say that God is complete in himself, that all derives from this. If God is the creator, there is nothing more that can be said. Everything we say about God comes from these three truths. And the Bible wants to emphasise these three things all the way through. These are the three big things the Bible is going to go big on. God is the only one who is the creator, the judge, and who is eternal. And if we lose any of those things, even if we drop one of them out, we lose God. So I'm going to underline this because it's really important. The Bible's presentation is that God is the only God. So therefore, worship him. Why? Because he is the only creator, 
the only judge, the only one who is eternal. Or to put it the way that we've seen this evening, because God is one. Hopefully, stuff's starting to click together. And the alternative to oneness is, as we've said, idolatry or rivals. So if you were to say that something else is the creator, you're making a rival to God. If you were to say someone else is going to judge at the end of time, you're making a rival to God. If you're going to say that anyone else is eternal, you're making a rival to God. To do anything else is simply idolatry. That is what idolatry is. The Bible simply doesn't allow anyone else to be involved in creation, in judgment, or to be eternal other than God. Which has massive implications when you think about it. When someone else arrives on the scene and says, hey, in the beginning, I was with God. I'm eternal. I'm the creator. You know what? I've been given power to judge. And the Bible has a massive issue with God's people. So you work your way through the big issue with giving loyalty to someone else, whether it's a golden calf or two golden calves in Kings. It has an issue when loyalty is given to anybody else. It has an issue when you pray to someone else. It has an issue when you give the name. The name is the Bible's way of talking about who God is, the name, to anyone else. It has a big issue when someone else is receiving glory. You know the book of Revelation? John bows down to an angel and the angel goes, no, 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 don't do that. I'm not God. It has a big em- emphasis on who shares the throne with God. But strikingly, the books that make a big deal of that are also the books that start to talk about a servant who sounds quite godlike. Or the books that start talking about a son of man who shares a throne with God himself. So something's going on. And the big point that Mr. Borkham here, Richard Borkham, wants to make is that anyone that the Bible gives the divine identity or the things that make God God to is God. Anyone who is called the creator, the judge, and is called eternal, well, the Bible says they're God. And that's really important when we get to the New Testament, as we'll see in a moment. So what I've been saying then leads to this question, what about the Trinity? Well, simply tonight, I just want to say that monotheism, that God is one, when we rightly define it, doesn't give any pressure for or against God being Trinity. When the Bible says God is one, it's not saying, therefore he's three, but it's importantly not saying, therefore he can't be three. Oneness, God being one, leaves space for the Trinity. It means there's no other gods, one God, but it doesn't say anything about God being plural in himself. But as we work our way through the Bible, we start to find that the Old Testament starts to give us pressure for the Trinity. In fact, we start to see it where everything else is going. So have a look at that little picture. You've got a little diagram there. We've had this picture before. If you remember back to Genesis, we're saying this is the picture Genesis sets up. The creator, the king over everything, and the judge. That is the divine identity there. And we find out that as we go through the Bible, so we hit Genesis chapter 12 and 17, for example, with Abraham, that God is going to bless the world through one individual child of Abraham. God's plan is for the whole world to know who he is. Exodus chapter 9, God says he's going to make his name, the name, known throughout the whole earth. Numbers chapter 14, we were there only a few weeks ago. Number 14, verse 21, God says, Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory 
of the Lord fills the whole earth. God's plan is for his glory, his name, knowledge of God to fill the whole earth. God's plan is to demonstrate who he is to everyone. But the question is how? And as the Old Testament develops, as the story continues, there are more and more things pointing that way. And we don't get total clarity on how God's going to do it until we find the one page in the Bible that's not inspired, but is really important. The one page of the Bible that says the New Testament. Don't worry, you don't need to fire me as a pastor. I'm not saying the Bible's not inspired, but the one page here, the New Testament, is where we start to get clarity. See, the question of how God is going to be made known as the one true God starts to suggest more. And we're going to have to stray outside of the Pentateuch to get clear on that. But if you were here for the Isaiah series, if you're here over Easter, you'll know some of how that works. If not, you can go to the church website and listen to some of that. But remember what you've been saying, what I've been trying to underline here. The Bible says that God is one, and God is the creator, the judge, and the only eternal one. Anyone the Bible assigns the divine identity to is God. That is what the Bible wants to say. So as you turn to the New Testament, it's really interesting where it spends a lot, and I mean a lot of its time. As I said, we don't find the answer to how three can be one, but we find the New Testament authors explaining how Jesus can be the creator, how Jesus can be the judge, how Jesus can be eternal, whilst also not a rival to God. Again, anyone the Bible assigns the divine identity to is the one true God. Anyone the Bible says is the creator, judge, and eternal, they are God. The argument that Jesus doesn't say he's God, this is something I've heard people say, Jesus never says he's God. It's far too simplistic. If you realise what we're saying here, if Jesus says he's the creator, Jesus says he's God. If Jesus says he's going to judge, Jesus is God. That's how the Bible handles that question. The big place to go for that, if you want to read more about this, is John chapter 5. In fact, it's one of the passages, you can go there in a minute. John chapter 5 is where the debate happens. There's a debate between the Jewish leaders and Jesus about who Jesus is. And he makes that exact case right there in that chapter. Or as you turn to the start of the New Testament letters, you get Paul saying, hi, my name's Paul, and here's a random fact about God for you. No, he's saying something more than that. He's saying, hi, my name's Paul, have I told you Jesus is God? Because he's the creator, or he's the judge, or he's eternal. Let's prove that for ourselves, shall we? Turn back into your groups. Pick one of those passages I've got there. That is six. Uh, There's six-ish groups. Pick one that looks interesting. Maybe I've whetted your appetite for one of them. See what it says about those categories we've talked about and what it says about Jesus in light of them. Let's go. In the interest of time, and I know how keen you are to keep looking at the Bible, and that's a good thing, but I'm going to break in there. Hopefully you've started to see that the New Testament all over the place is going, well, Jesus is the creator, Jesus is the judge, Jesus is eternal. And if the Bible's saying that God being one isn't saying that the God can't be Trinity, well, all over the place, all over the New Testament, Jesus has been called God. And therefore, if there's only one God, and Jesus is God, and God the Father's God, and God the Spirit's God, well, Trinity. You see how that works? Start with the one, out to the three. Let me show you these two books quickly. Two books that I think help. This guy spent a lot of his career uh, working on this question. And I think he's done a great job in lots of ways. I wouldn't fully agree with everything he says, 
Uh, but he then has little footnotes to go, I don't fully believe what I'm saying here, but maybe it's true. Uh, so at least he's humble there. A book called Who is God? So this Richard Bork and both of them. Who is God? Nice and uh, short. Nice and hard cover as well, which always goes down well in my books. It's a short book that's got a big cover, under £10. If you want to think about how God is revealed through the Bible, spends a lot of time in John, Philippians, that kind of thing. And this is a bigger one if you want something more chunky with a lot more footnotes, where he works through books like Isaiah and Revelation and wants to say, Jesus is God there too. I've given you the, the cliff notes, you could say, for those as we've gone this evening. They're both great. Uh, you can boil them off me if you'd like as well. Ah, oh, I put a slide in for questions. <laughs> I was kind of hoping we didn't have any time for questions, but we do have time for questions. Um, is there anything that would be good to clarify that I've said this evening? I admit I've put this together in a few days and I've had no sleep this weekend. Uh, so hopefully I've made some sort of sense. I'm not promising to give good answers now. I'm happy to talk later as well. Anything burning and pressing we want to talk about right now? Otherwise, grab me at the end. You've completely bamboozled us. We have no idea what you've been talking about all evening, Dave. <laughs> well, that's great. If you do want to catch me afterwards, feel free to call me aside or uh, if you want to think more about it. But we're closing in on the end of our time this evening. We try and stick six to seven on a Sunday night. So I'm going to obey that rule. Uh, but it'd be great to pray and praise God. Because what we want to do is, in these sessions is leave praising God for who he is all the more. And hopefully we've seen that in bright technicolor lights tonight. So let me pray and give thanks for tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are one. We praise you that our God is one. We praise you that you are the creator, that you are the judge and you are the only eternal. And Father, we praise you for the Lord Jesus, who is the creator, the judge and eternal. Father, we thank you that he is the alpha and the omega. He is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. We praise you that he is returning soon. Praise you that he will judge and do what is right. Father, we pray that what we've seen this evening, uh, we'd continue to think about, help us to remember and dwell on the things that have been helpful and right this evening. Would we forget anything that's been useless or unhelpful? And would we leave praising you for who you are? Father, thank you for the clarity you give us in your word. And we pray we'd continue to look at it more and think hard about it. Thank you for our time together this evening. Amen. Amen.